315, Chapter 15. Welcome to Craftlet. The podcast for crafters who love books. My name is Heather Ordover, and I'm podcasting from the shores of the Potomac in Virginia, the Old Dominion. Episode 315, Falling. This episode brought to you by Little Acorn Creations, handmade accessories for heart and home. And Knit Circus, the e-newsletter delivered to your mailbox, bringing you three rings of knitting, sewing, and fun. You can find out more at www.knitcircus.com. And Pennywise Consulting, technology solutions for your small business. And links to all of our sponsors can be found in the sidebar of the show notes at craftlit.com. Please visit them as their support for the show is one of the things that keeps it free for you. Well, hello. It is actually falling here. I don't know if it's going to last. I don't know if we're going to have another spike of heat, but for now, it was 56 degrees when I walked my son to the bus stop this morning. Yes, because they're back in school, which is the only reason I'm still surviving. And uh, and it was gorgeous. Dry, crisp. Mm. Been waiting for that. So I hope wherever you are, the weather is also really wonderful and marvelous. And I wanted to thank you all for your your emails of support and the, the kind things you have said. And, and especially... Uh, thank you for commiserating those of you who are nurses and registered nurse practitioners and in the medical field, all of you who are just as appalled at the medical system we find ourselves in where companies are in between we who need medical care and you who provide medical care and those people in the middle seem to be the only ones who are making any money and uh, something's wrong. Something's wrong when somebody is making money off of the rest of us getting sick. And I'm not pleased. And I'm writing letters. And you know that can't be good for anyone. <laughs> but, um, but yes, I am going to, in fact, have to stop the Just the Books feed after this, uh, this book is over. I won't stop before, but I'm not going to be able to keep doing it. I am going to have to pursue uh, employment. I've started the process. It is a long, slow slog to transfer your teaching license from one state to another. It is also an expensive one, and I will have to uh, fund that by working. So that part kind of stinks. But, you know, uh, everybody works. Whether you're making tons of money or not, everybody's working at something. So a thing that I found out about this week that I thought you might be interested in is I got uh, an email on Ravelry called Halos of Hope podcaster throwdown. This is a note from a listener, listener Jen, and she wanted me to communicate the following to you. Laura and Jen are, are hosting what they're calling the podcast throwdown, Rumble in the Stash. They're the co-hosts of the Naughty Girls Knitcast, and they're working with uh, Benjamin Levisay on a project to get hats for Halos of Hope. Basically, they are initialing a general challenge to all podcast hosts to try and get listeners to donate more hats to Halos and Hope than the other podcasts' listeners. So the rules are... There are no rules. No, we're just kidding. But 
Uh, it's more like a playground style throwdown. So there aren't too many rules. It boils down to this. I can do whatever I want to get you to donate hats. I'm just going to ask you nicely. Uh, you can donate to multiple podcast teams, but each individual hat will only count towards one team. There is a link to guidelines for the Halos of Hope throwdown. You can get that link with the guidelines in it at craftlit.com episode 315 or at org. That's all one word, Hope slash volunteers slash cap hyphen patterns hyphen a hyphen guidelines dot html and that's pretty much it so you know be nice donate lots of hats and then um give us credit and we'll see how many craft lit people can do this i know not all of you listen in real time so it's going to be kind of a challenge to get the word out to you but i will try my best if you are unfamiliar with Halos of Hope, um, you may recall the old, I think it's Patternworks chinchilla hat chemo cap knit design. This is along those same lines. This was started by a woman who had fast metastasizing breast, breast cancer and survived, thank God. And um, now she runs this 501c3 charity, which means it's a legal, actual, not-for-profit charity group. And, uh, and so they're just trying to get more hats into the hands of people who need them. Soft hats, uh, cotton's good. Um, there's lots of guidelines. There's lots of free patterns, uh, should be washable. All of that information is at their Halos of Hope website. So I am going to try my best to get at least one hat in. I, it's hard with all the socks that we're doing for the grounded knit alongs and, and the grounded novel rollout, but I am going to try because I think I actually still have some chinchilla left over from forever ago. So uh, take a look. I think this is a great idea, and I hope you guys can participate. Ooh, and the last little newsy bit before the book. I have some news that's so exciting. I have a pattern in an upcoming book. And this book, I wish I'd come up with this idea myself. Uh, this book is called Hitch, Patterns Inspired by the Films of Alfred Hitchcock. I know, right? How cool is that? Stephanie Talent, who is the brains behind uh, tech editing the What Else Would Madame Defarge Knit book, and who did California Revival Knits. I interviewed her on this show uh, when her book came out. She's, she's one of those people who just does everything, and she does it all beautifully. And on top of it all, she's a veterinarian. So she's like, you know, genius person. She came up with this idea. And like the Defarge books, she has built a book of patterns with a, a whole mess load of really cool designers. And the designers are getting paid, just like with the Defarge books. And, uh, and so we have this huge collection of really cool, beautiful, very couture-like garments. I'm, there are really, there are some sweaters in here that I'm going to have to lose a little bit more weight to wear just so I can rock it like the free world. It's gorgeous stuff between the, the Rio gloves, which I love and the $1,100 sweater. I love this. It's a, a it's a, a pattern based on uh, Lisa's clothes and rear window. Just gorgeous. As you can imagine, I mean, anything that was designed with Grace Kelly in mind, it's going to be stunning. And there's there's quite a bit. And of course, if you know Hitchcock movies, you'll love it all that much more because, because they look like stuff from the movies. 
That's really exciting stuff. And unlike, you know, unlike Defarge books, which take into account kind of time periods long past, this has this fabulous retro modern feel to it because kind of with the you know the madman vibe that's out there we've got the same kind of thing going here so it's really timely you know in a way that the defarge books aren't necessarily which is not to disparage the defarge books just to say that that if you're expecting it to look like a book of defarge patterns you are misguided this is a far more hip and uh, and in many ways, a couture-like book. You will see some crossover designers, not just me. You'll see Elizabeth Green Musselman. You'll see Becky Herrick, Stephanie Talent, Jalice Spiro. Um, oh, and uh, Anna Dalvey, uh, for those of you who, who follow her stuff. A lot of cooperative press people here. And, uh, and that should be no surprise because cooperative press is, after all, cooperative. And we all know each other like each other and it's really cool so i'm thrilled that this book is coming out and i'm so excited to put a link to the ravelry page in the show notes so you can go and have a look at hitch patterns inspired by the films of alfred hitchcock by stephanie talent from cooperative press september 2013 so on to age of innocence you know, a couple of weeks ago, I, I mentioned uh, Remains of the Day on the podcast, and I got lots of interesting comments. Actually, the last couple of weeks, I've got lots of interesting email and comments with all of the mishgas that's been going on. But when I mentioned Remains of the Day, which was a Merchant Ivory movie from the early 90s, if you haven't seen it, you really must. It's uh, a young Emma Thompson and a younger Anthony Hopkins, and it's marvelous and heartbreaking. And one of the things I got back was a, a list on the comments at Craftlet of other movies that have that same kind of, it, it's not even ships passing in the night, it's missed opportunities. It's more specific than just, oh, I guess that didn't work out. It's a, a, a series, a connected series of coulda, woulda, shouldas, and painful, heartbreakingly painful missed opportunities. Moments that never happened that should have. And the cool part about uh, Remains of the Day is, like with Sense and Sensibility, when Ang Lee did such an amazing job, when he was still not, as far as the mythology goes, still not able to fully speak English at the time, um, the book Remains of the Day was written by Kazuo Ishiguro, and I'm fairly certain I just butchered his name, but he's he's Japanese, uh, Japanese born. Yeah, I think he was born in um, Nagasaki, but he he moved to England when he was five, so he he grew up in England. But this is you know the same thing about Bram Stoker. Bram Stoker wrote this fabulous book, but he had that outsider's eye because he grew up in Ireland. And we've talked about this before on the podcast. And I, I think uh, Ishiguro had that, even though he grew up in Britain for you know the vast majority of his childhood. When your parents are from the outside of the, the culture that you're living in, they're going to communicate a lot of that um, razor- sharp insight to you and 
boy, did Ishiguro nail the the people and the place and the time in Remains of the Day. And uh, and one of the other books that uh, was brought up was uh, One Day. If you didn't read One Day, the movie was fine. It was fine. The book was awesome. And I mean, a very simple conceit, but boy, does it suck you. And it was kind of like the time traveler's wife for me that way, that you just get completely sucked in and wrapped up and you just can't help yourself. And uh, marvelous, marvelous fun. Sad, marvelous fun, but marvelous nonetheless. So it's fascinating to me looking at those lost opportunity, missed opportunity books that are so good and how with Remains of the Day, you have that kind of outsider's insight into the people and places. Here we have Edith Wharton, who is not an outsider at all. She's very inside on the inside of this world. And I think it's because this world that we are getting a chance to, to go into and look at is such a, a rarefied world and such a closed world to the rest of us that I trust her and trust her maybe even more than I would an outsider. And normally I think outsiders have that extraordinary ability to see with an untainted eye kind of like when an artist uh, an art teacher is is telling you to uh, draw what you see not what you know because for example like the if you have a coffee mug next to you and it's at an angle from you you know that the mug has a round opening so you are very likely if you're trying to draw the coffee mug you are very likely to try and draw the opening as a circle well it's, it's not a circle because it's not you're not looking down over the top at the circle. You're looking from the side. So it's, it's kind of an oval. And, and if you draw what you know, you'll draw it wrong. You'll draw a circle. If you draw what you see, you have a much better opportunity of drawing that kind of off-kilter, angular oval that, that is actually the representation of what you're looking at. And, and I think that's why so often the, the people who are outside the group they're able to, if they're a good writer, they're able to write so well about the reality of what they're looking at because they're writing what they see, what they observe, not what they think should be there. If they're being, you know, honest writers, if they're out with an agenda, then it's going to be whatever it is. But if they're those kind of, you know, good observational writers, Hemingway, Fitzgerald, these people who write uh, <laughs> truth and beauty, Wharton, in this chapter, in chapter 15, we already know that Newland is going to the Chiverses. We know he's going north. We know he's, he's going to go up where Ellen is, even though he's not going to go stay with Ellen where she's staying. He's going to go basically hang at the next door neighbors. He'll, he'll be the boy next door for a little while. And we know that May is off in St. Augustine in Florida. And, hmm... Hmm. So, Newland is taking action. We have, we have had these remains of the day moments all the way up until now. And now he's going to do something. Did you think this would happen? Did you ever think we would get here? I know. So, that's cool, but that's also really dangerous. And we have no basis to predict anything on at this point, we have no way to guess what's going to happen 
with Newland because this moment to me does not seem to be in his character at all. And obviously there's going to be a lot that we can't talk about until uh, after you've listened to the chapter, but a couple of terms for you, uh, a cutter, uh, barring a cutter to drive on or drive with or drive over on, um, that's a sleigh. It's the old fashioned kind of courier knives sleigh that you think of. Uh, so that's, that's what a cutter is. There's a reference to a grand tour and it is in quotation marks in the book, the grand tour. I think if you read The Enchanted Chocolate Pot, I think the sequel to that is some reference to the Grand Tour. I'm going to have to go find this now. Yes, Sorcery in Cecilia or The Enchanted Chocolate Pot is the first book. The Grand Tour is, in fact, the name of the second book. And I just found out there's a third book, The Mislaid Magician, or Ten Years After, being the private correspondence between two prominent families regarding a scandal touching the highest levels of government and the security of the realm. (laughs) I love these. These are, they're kids' books, basically, but they're really, really well written, and they're really smartly written, and we talked about them ages ago on the podcast because one of you told me to read them and uh oh now there's a new one i'm so excited i'm gonna go (laughs) i'm gonna go find that they're fun they're alternate reality it's kind of like uh jonathan strange and mr norrell light l-i-t-e for advertising purposes uh not heavy duty books at all but an alternate reality regency period where there's magic and sorcery and that's just an accepted way of things and Uh, Anyway, the second book, The Grand Tour, they, uh, in the Victorian era and a little bit before that, I think, uh, certainly men, uh, sometimes women, would, when they came of age, go off on a grand tour of Europe. So this would be going to all of the great capitals in Europe and going to all the grand museums and visiting all the grand cathedrals and doing all the grand everything, probably eating and drinking and then come home a better educated person. So when one speaks of the Grand Tour, one is speaking of a very specific thing. And, uh, and something, boy, I would love to do, right? Oh, wouldn't that be fun getting to go all over for a year? Just, you know, take off for a year and go off and uh, see the world. Not a bad idea. Now, there's also um, a conversation, again, about patroons. These are original landowners from the you know, 1600s, people who got the original land, land charter in uh, this part of the country, in, uh, in, in old, old New York, old school New York. And if you, if you go back and listen to The Legend of Sleepy Hollow, which is available on the Just the Books feed, if you go to iTunes, it's one of the original episodes. I think it's like 30 eight or something like that. It's three, three episodes. And of course, now that we're getting closer to Halloween, it's an excellent time to go back and listen to The Legend of Sleepy Hollow. But I talked uh, at length, as I recall, about Washington Irving and this part of the country. And now that we actually get to go to this part of the country with Edith Wharton, we get to travel north of the city through Riverdale and up past Spite and Dival and uh, which is an awesome train stop. I actually even mentioned Spite and Dival in my novel, Grounded, because I had to type the word. <laughs> I was so excited. I could put them on a train. I could have them go through Spite and Dival. I need to mention Spite and Dival because it's Dutch and it is not pronounced the way it looks. And it's just fun. 
But I digress. If you ever have the chance to go to New York and go north of the city on the Hudson River line on a Metro North train, you'll go through uh, the city, you'll go up above ground, you'll cross the Harlem River, you will make a left and go past Byton Dival, and then you'll go up the Hudson. It is gorgeous. It is beautiful. And you will, if you're paying attention and not just looking at the water, before you hit Terrytown, you will go right past Washington Irving's home. And it's beautiful and it's lovely and you can see it through the trees, especially if you're going up when it's, you know, the fall or the winter and the leaves are starting to come down. But even when it's bright green, if you're paying attention, you can see it. It's quite close to the train tracks. Beautiful little home. Well, even by today's standards, Washington Irving's home is a lovely size. It's uh, certainly not a, a mansion by today's McMansion standards, but it's, it's a nice-sized home. However, there are other homes you can visit in that area that are indeed mansions. Um, there's a the Vanderbilts or the Roosevelts. Anyway, a whole mess load of families had these big homes, and now you can go and tour them. And there are oh, hundreds of books and tour guides and things like this. You can go find out on, on, on your own. There are probably even websites that say, take this tour of the Hudson River Valley. The funny part here is if you have seen any of those grand homes in this part of New York, the description of the Vanderleiden's home will make you giggle because, and Brenda does a marvelous job with her tone of voice as she describes it. It's early in the chapter. It is a marvelously wry description. And I, I wish I could tell you who it is that Edith Wharton is insulting. I'm not positive who, who she's going after. I, I've been trying to research some of these homes, and I, I haven't found one that matches the description. But for any of you who have done the grand tour of the Hudson River Valley, do write in and let me know if you've seen the place that she's talking about, because I am willing to bet car, hard, cold cash that she's making fun of somebody specific. Now, there's one other thing to, to listen for. Well, there's a lot to listen to in this chapter, but another thing to listen for is the list of authors and books at the end. I'll tell you more about these when we get there, but but just as as you hear a Newland unpacking a box of books, pay attention because some of them I think you will be familiar with and some of them you probably won't, but you might want to get copies of. So uh, all those things will be linked to in the show notes, but listen to the list. They are, they are contemporary books of Newland's. These are, are appropriate books for him to be getting. So, uh, so just keep your ears open and we'll talk about those more on the flip side. And, uh, and with that, I think we are ready for chapter 15 of The Age of Innocence by Edith Wharton. Chapter 15. Newland Archer arrived at the Chiverses on Friday evening, and on Saturday went conscientiously through all the rites appertaining to a weekend at High Bank. In the morning, he had a spin in the ice boat with his hostess and a few of the hardier guests. In the afternoon, he went over the farm with Reggie and listened, 
in the elaborately appointed stables to long and impressive disquisitions on the horse. After tea, he talked in a corner of the firelit hall with a young lady who had professed herself broken-hearted when his engagement was announced, but was now eager to tell him of her own matrimonial hopes. And finally, about midnight, he assisted in putting a goldfish in one visitor's bed, dressed up a burglar in the bathroom of a nervous aunt, and saw in the small hours, by joining in a pillow fight, that ranged from the nurseries to the basement. But on Sunday, after luncheon, he borrowed a cutter and drove over to Scoiter Cliff. People had always been told that the house at Scoiter Cliff was an Italian villa. Those who had never been to Italy believed it. So did some who had. The house had been built by Mr. Vanderloyden in his youth, on his return from the Grand Tour, and in anticipation of his approaching marriage with Miss Louisa Dagonet. It was a large, square, wooden structure with tongue-and-grooved walls painted pale green and white, a Corinthian portico, and fluted pilasters between the windows. From the high ground on which it stood, a series of terraces bordered by balustrades and urns descended in the steel engraving style to a small, irregular lake, with an asphalt edge overhung by rare weeping conifers. To the right and left, the famous, weedless lawns, studded with specimen trees, each of a different variety, rolled away to long ranges of grass, crested with elaborate cast-iron ornaments. And below, in a hollow, lay the four-roomed stone house which the first patroon had built on the land granted him in 1612. Against the uniform sheet of snow and the grayish winter sky, the Italian villa loomed up rather grimly. Even in summer it kept its distance, and the boldest coleus bed had never ventured nearer than thirty feet from its awful front. Now, as Archer rang the bell, the long tinkle seemed to echo through a mausoleum, and the surprise of the butler, who at length responded to the call, was as great as though he had been summoned from his final sleep. Happily, Archer was of the family, and therefore, irregular though his arrival was, entitled to be informed that the Countess Olenska was out, having driven to afternoon service with Mrs. Vanderloyden exactly three-quarters of an hour earlier. "'Mr. Vanderloyden,' the butler continued, "'is in, sir, but my impression is that he is either finishing his nap or else reading yesterday's evening post. I heard him say, sir, on his return from church this morning, that he intended to look through the evening post after luncheon.' If you like, sir, I might go to the library door and listen. But Archer, thanking him, said that he would go and meet the ladies, and the butler, obviously relieved, closed the door on him majestically. A groom took the cutter to the stables, and Archer struck through the park to the high road. The village of Scoiter Cliff was only a mile and a half away, but he knew that Mrs. Vanderloyden never walked, and that he must keep to the road to meet the carriage. Presently, however, 
Coming down a footpath that crossed the highway, he caught sight of a slight figure in a red cloak with a big dog running ahead. He hurried forward, and Madame Olenska stopped short with a smile of welcome. "'Ah, oh, you've come!' she said and drew her hand from her muff. The red cloak made her look gay and vivid like the Ellen Mingott of old days, and he laughed as he took her hand and answered, I came to see what you were running away from. Her face clouded over, but she answered, Ah, well, you will see presently. The answer puzzled him. Why, do you mean that you've been overtaken? She shrugged her shoulders with a little movement like Nastasia's, and rejoined in a lighter tone, "'Shall we walk on? I'm so cold after the sermon. What does it matter now you're here to protect me?' The blood rose to his temples, and he caught a fold of her cloak. "'Ellen, what is it? You must tell me.' "'Oh, presently. Let's run a race first. My feet are freezing to the ground,' she cried, and gathering up the cloak, she fled away across the snow, the dog leaping about her with challenging barks.' For a moment, Archer stood watching, his gaze delighted by the flash of the red meteor against the snow. Then he started after her and they met, panting and laughing, at a wicket that led into the park. She turned up at him and smiled. I knew you'd come. That shows you wanted me to, he returned, with a disproportionate joy in their nonsense. The white glitter of the trees filled the air with its own mysterious brightness, and as they walked over the snow, the ground seemed to sing under their feet. "'Where did you come from?' Madame Olenska asked. He told her and added, "'It was because I got your note.' After a pause, she said with a just perceptible chill in her voice, "'May asked you to take care of me.' "'I didn't need any asking.' "'You mean I'm so evidently helpless and defenseless?' What a poor thing you must all think me. But women here seem not, seem never to feel the need, any more than the blessed in heaven. He lowered his voice to ask, What sort of need? Oh, don't ask me. I don't speak your language, she retorted petulantly. The answer smote him like a blow, and he stood still in the path looking down at her. What did I come for if I don't speak yours? Oh, my friend, she laid her hand lightly on his arm, and he pleaded earnestly, Ellen, why won't you tell me what's happened? She shrugged again. Does anything ever happen in heaven? He was silent, and they walked on a few yards without exchanging a word. Finally, she said, I will tell you, but where, where, where? One can't be alone for a minute in that great seminary of a house with all the doors wide open and always a servant bringing tea or a log for the fire or the newspaper. Is there nowhere in an American house where one may be by oneself? You're so shy, and yet you're so public. I always feel as if I were in the convent again or on the stage before a dreadfully polite audience that never applauds. Oh, you don't like us, Archer exclaimed. They were walking past the house of the old patroon, with its squat walls and small square windows compactly grouped around a central chimney. The shutters stood wide, 
and through one of the newly washed windows Archer caught the light of a fire. Why, the house is open, he said. She stood still. No, only for today at least. I wanted to see it, and Mr. Vanderloyden had the fire lit and the windows open so that we might stop there on the way back from church this morning. She ran up the steps and tried the door. It's still unlocked. What luck? Come in and we can have a quiet talk. Mrs. Vanderloyden has driven over to see her old aunts at Rhinebeck, and we shan't be missed at the house for another hour. He followed her into the narrow passage. His spirits, which had dropped at her last words, rose with an irrational leap. The homely little house stood there, its panels and brasses shining in the firelight as if magically created to receive them. A big bed of embers still gleamed in the kitchen chimney under an iron pot hung from an ancient crane. Rush-bottomed armchairs faced each other across the tiled hearth and rows of delft plates stood on shelves against the walls. Archer stooped over and threw a log upon the embers. Madame Olenska, dropping her cloak, sat down in one of the chairs. Archer leaned against the chimney and looked at her. You're laughing now, but when you wrote me, you were unhappy, he said. Yes, she paused. But I can't feel unhappy when you're here. I shan't be here long, he rejoined, his lips stiffening with the effort to say just so much and no more. No, I know, but I'm improvident. I live in the moment when I'm happy. The words stole through him like a temptation, and to close his senses to it, he moved away from the hearth and stood gazing out at the black tree bowls against the snow. But it was as if she too had shifted her place, and he still saw her, between himself and the trees, drooping over the fire with her indolent smile. Archer's heart was beating insubordinately. What if it were from him that she had been running away, and if she had waited to tell him so till they were here alone together in this secret room? Ellen, if I'm really a help to you, if you really wanted me to come, tell me what's wrong, tell me what it is you're running away from, he insisted. He spoke without shifting his position, without even turning to look at her. If the thing was to happen, it was to happen in this way, with the whole width of the room between them and his eyes still fixed on the outer snow. For a long moment she was silent, and in that moment Archer imagined her, almost heard her, stealing up behind him to throw her light arms around his neck. While he waited, soul and body throbbing with the miracle to come, his eyes mechanically received the image of a heavily coated man with his fur collar turned up who was advancing along the path to the house. The man was Julius Beaufort. Ha <laughs> ha Archer cried, bursting into a laugh. Madame Olenska had sprung up and moved to his side, slipping her hand into his, but after a glance through the window, her face paled, and she shrank back. 
So that was it, Archer said derisively. I didn't know he was here, Madame Olenska murmured. Her hand still clung to Archer's, but he drew away from her and, walking into the passage, threw open the door of the house. Hello, Beaufort. This way. Madame Olenska was expecting you, he said. During his journey back to New York the next morning, Archer relived with a fatiguing vividness his last moments at Scoiter Cliff. Beaufort, though clearly annoyed at finding him with Madame Olenska, had, as usual, carried off the situation high-handedly. His way of ignoring people whose presence inconvenienced him actually gave them, if they were sensitive to it, a feeling of invisibility, of non-existence. Archer, as the three strolled back through the park, was aware of this odd sense of disembodiment, and, humbling as it was to his vanity, it gave him the ghostly advantage of observing unobserved. Beaufort had entered the little house with his usual easy assurance, but he could not smile away the vertical line between his eyes. It was fairly clear that Madame Olenska had not known that he was coming, though her words to Archer had hinted at the possibility. At any rate, she had evidently not told him where she was going when she left New York, and her unexplained departure had exasperated him. The ostensible reason of his appearance was the discovery, the very night before, of a perfect little house, not in the market, which was really just the thing for her, but would be snapped up instantly if she didn't take it, and he was loud in mock reproaches for the dance she had led him in running away, just as he had found it. If only this new dodge for talking along a wire had been a little bit nearer perfection, I might have told you all this from town and been toasting my toes before the club fire at this minute instead of tramping after you through the snow, he grumbled, disguising a real irritation under the pretense of it. And at this opening, Madame Olenska twisted the talk away to the fantastic possibility that they might one day actually converse with each other from street to street or even incredible dream from one town to another. This struck from all three allusions to Edgar Poe and Jules Fern and such platitudes as naturally rise to the lips of the most intelligent when they are talking against time and dealing with a new invention in which it would seem ingenuous to believe too soon. And the question of the telephone carried them safely back to the big house. Mrs. van der Luyden had not yet returned, and Archer took his leave and walked off to fetch the cutter while Beaufort followed the Countess Olenska indoors. It was probable that, little as the van der Luydens encouraged unannounced visits, he could count on being asked to dine and sent back to the station to catch the nine o'clock train. But more than that he would certainly not get, for it would be inconceivable to his hosts that a gentleman travelling without luggage should wish to spend the night— and distasteful to them to propose it to a person with whom they were on terms of such limited cordiality as Beaufort. Beaufort knew all this, and must have foreseen it, and his taking the long journey for so small a reward gave the measure of his impatience. He was undeniably in pursuit of the Countess Olenska, and Beaufort had only one object in view in his pursuit— of pretty women.
His dull and childless home had long since palled on him, and in addition to more permanent consolations, he was always in quest of amorous adventures in his own set. This was the man from whom Madame Olenska was avowedly flying. The question was whether she had fled because his importunities displeased her, or because she did not wholly trust herself to resist them. Unless, indeed, all her talk of flight had been a blind, and her departure no more than a maneuver. Archer did not really believe this. Little as he had actually seen of Madame Olenska, he was beginning to think that he could read her face, and if not her face, her voice, and both had betrayed annoyance and even dismay at Beaufort's sudden appearance. But, after all, if this were the case, was it not worse than if she had left New York for the express purpose of meeting him? If she had done that, she ceased to be an object of interest. She threw in her lot with the vulgarest of dissemblers, a woman engaged in a love affair with Beaufort, classed herself irretrievably. No, it was worse a thousand times if, judging Beaufort and probably despising him, she was yet drawn to him by all that gave him an advantage over the other men about her. His habit of two continents and two societies, his familiar association with artists and actors and people generally in the world's eye, and his careless contempt for local prejudices. Beaufort was vulgar. He was uneducated. He was purse-proud. But the circumstances of his life, and a certain native shrewdness, made him better worth talking to than many men, morally and socially his betters, whose horizon was bounded by the Battery and the Central Park. How should anyone coming from a wider world not feel the difference and be attracted by it? Madame Olenska, in a burst of irritation, had said to Archer that he and she did not talk the same language, and the young man knew that in some respects this was true. But Beaufort understood every turn of her dialect and spoke it fluently. His view of life, his tone, his attitude were merely a coarser reflection of those revealed in Count Olenski's letter. This might seem to be his disadvantage with Count Olenski's wife, but Archer was too intelligent to think that a young woman like Ellen Olenska would necessarily recoil from everything that reminded her of her past. She might believe herself wholly in revolt against it, but what had charmed her in it would still charm her, even though it were against her will. Thus, with a painful impartiality, did the young man make out the case for Beaufort and for Beaufort's victim. A longing to enlighten her was strong in him, and there were moments when he imagined that all she asked was to be enlightened. That evening he unpacked his books from London. The box was full of things he had been waiting for impatiently, a new volume of Herbert Spencer, another collection of the prolific Alphonse Daudet's brilliant tales, and a novel called Middlemarch, as to which there had lately been interesting things said in the reviews. He had declined three dinner invitations in favor of this feast, but though he turned the pages 
with the sensuous joy of the book lover. He did not know what he was reading, and one book after another dropped from his hand. Suddenly among them he lit on a small volume of verse which he had ordered because the name had attracted him, The House of Life. He took it up and found himself plunged in an atmosphere unlike any he had ever breathed in books, so warm, so rich, and yet so ineffably tender, that it gave a new and haunting beauty to the most elementary of human passions. All through the night he pursued through those enchanted pages the vision of a woman who had the face of Ellen Olenska. But when he woke the next morning and looked out at the brownstone houses across the street and thought of his desk in Mr. Letterblair's office and the family pew in Grace Church, his hour in the park of Scoiter Cliff became as far outside the pale of probability as the visions of the night. "'Mercy, how pale you look, Newland!' Janey commented over the coffee cups at breakfast, and his mother added, "'Newland, dear, I've noticed lately that you've been coughing. I do hope you're not letting yourself be overworked.' For it was the conviction of both ladies that, under the iron despotism of his senior partners, the young man's life was spent in the most exhausting professional labors, and he had never thought it necessary to undeceive them. The next two or three days dragged by heavily. The taste of the usual was like cinders in his mouth, and there were moments when he felt as if he were being buried alive under his future. He heard nothing of the Countess Olenska or of the perfect little house, and though he met Beaufort at the club, they merely nodded at each other across the whist tables. It was not until the fourth evening that he found a note awaiting him on his return home. Come late tomorrow. I must explain to you, Ellen. Those were the only words it contained. The young man who was dining out thrust the note into his pocket, smiling a little at the Frenchness of the to you. After dinner he went to a play, and it was not until his return home after midnight that he drew Madame Olenska's missive out again and reread it slowly a number of times. There were several ways of answering it, and he gave a considerable thought to each one during the watches of an agitated night. That on which, when morning came, he finally decided was to pitch some clothes into a portmanteau and jump on board a boat that was leaving that very afternoon for St. Augustine. End of chapter 15 I bet you weren't expecting that ending to this chapter. Or maybe you were. Maybe you saw that his close encounter with Ellen would push him more forcefully towards his May. It's a tough chapter, isn't it? And it starts off so funny with all the ridiculous things that he does with Chivers' you know, putting goldfish into somebody's bowl or somebody's bowl into somebody's bed and having a pillow fight. And boy, 
did that not seem 1,000% out of character for Newland? Again, I think that was kind of the point, that staying with the Chiverses was not his current life. That, that was going back to his younger, younger, prancier days, perhaps, but, but not, not the way he is now. There's a line in this chapter that I, I found myself so taken with over and over again. And I'm, I'm curious to see if it, it stood out to you, too. When he and Ellen are alone together in the Patroon's cottage, uh, it says he spoke without shifting his position, without even turning to look at her. If the thing was to happen, it was to happen this way, with the whole width of the room between them and his eyes still fixed on the outer snow. There is something about this moment where Newland allows himself to finally think, if the thing was to happen, it's to happen this way. And I thought, boy, that's crossing a line now. I mean, all this time we've seen him kind of toying with the idea that something maybe was going on and he was confused and he didn't understand why he can continuously felt compelled to speak to Ellen or see Ellen or go to Ellen or try and talk to Ellen or whatever. But now we've crossed that line. I think irrevocably, irretrievably, the the egg has been broken. The cat's out of the bag. And Ellen seems to sense it too, because when she when she comes next to him and they see Beaufort out the window... A, she seems disappointed and horrified, but B, before she sees Beaufort, she slips her hand into Newland's. And, oh, whoa, right? Because, oh, oh dear. The, now they know. They, now they know they both know without any question. It's like that, that moment when you realize that you've been attracted to a friend of yours for a very long time and find out that they've been attracted to you too. And now there's the elephant in the room. Now there's the, well, golly, now what? You know, and, and there's that, I don't, I don't want to risk the friendship if we do anything past this point, do we lose everything? And if we don't do anything, do we lose everything? And those are moments and questions that are so fraught and so human and so painful. And, and here it is. And, and chapter 15, we're not quite exactly halfway through the book. We're very close. There's 34 chapters in the book. So, you know, <laughs> good enough for government work. Is that what we say out here in Washington, D.C.? So, ouch. There's that. But then it gets even more ouch because Newland leaves. There's, of course, the, the clarity that we have that Beaufort is now actively pursuing Ellen. We also now know very clearly that Ellen is not interested. It's fine and Beaufort is an interesting person and she's bored off her mind. And so talking to Beaufort is fine, but she is not interested in Beaufort. And then we are also told more by Edith Wharton based on the books that she has, and the authors, that she has Newland pull out of his box. So going through them in order. Herbert Spencer, we could do an entire podcast 
on this man. He is, I've been reading about him. Wow. So, you, you don't know him, I'm willing to bet, unless you are uh, a scientist or a philosopher. <clears throat> Herbert Spencer is the guy who came up with the term survival of the fittest. Right? Not Darwin. Herbert Spencer. So, he's, he's this fascinating guy. He was born in Derby, England. He was born in 1820. He's what's called an autodidact. He is someone who taught himself everything. And wow, when I say everything, I'm kind of really talking about everything. So when Newland pulls out a volume of Herbert Spencer, this is a piece showing us that when, when Newland is talking about being a dilettante, somebody who's interested in kind of everything and not actually an expert in anything, but but interested in all sorts of stuff. This is what we're talking about. He's reading either <laughs> ethics, religion, anthropology, economics, political theory, philosophy, literature, biology, sociology, or psychology, because Spencer wrote on all of those things, learnedly, educatedly, and intelligently. He was totally widely read during his lifetime. And then after 1900, people kind of stopped reading him. And I'm shocked because it seems like he would still be really interesting to read. I'm, I'm not going to keep going on, but I will tell you that um, he's an interesting guy. He hung out with interesting people. He wrote a lot of really cool things. And he seems to, one of the things that I think is so interesting is because he was so interested in so many things himself and so uh, self-educated in so many interesting things, he drew from everything as he learned about new stuff. He wasn't uh, pigeonholed into, well, I'm a philosopher and therefore I only see things through the lens of philosophy or I only see things through the lens of biology. So that's the first book that Newland draws out. Another is a collection of the prolific Alphonse Daudet's Brilliant Tales. This would probably have been a book called uh, Letters from My Mill. It probably would have been written in French. And, uh, and that was, in fact, the, the book that seems to have um, brought Alphonse Daudet into everybody's uh, notice. And then, of course, Middlemarch which we will do on the podcast eventually. I'm waiting for a good enough recording. And Middlemarch is an interesting choice here. Middlemarch, written by George Eliot, which is the pen name of Mary Ann Evans. Uh, Middlemarch is, is fascinating. It's written in the 1870s, but it takes place in the early 1830s and ha has some real interesting themes going on. Um, status of women nature of marriage, sound familiar, uh, idealism, self-interest, religion, hypocrisy, political reform, education. It is a sprawling, big, almost Dickensian in its, it's huge. Um, it's a big book. Minutes are written by a woman and Newland and his treatment of understanding of interest in women is fascinating. And you're going to see more of that in next week's chapter as well. So I just, I thought it was really kind of a nice tip of the hat that Edith Wharton gives here to George Eliot, which is cool. But the last book 
The House of Life. This is the book of poems that uh, captures Newland's attention. This book is the important one. Now, I don't know if you know Christina Rossetti and the poem The Goblin Market, but when I took my Victorian literature class, that poem is the one that stuck with me. There were a couple of them, but that poem in particular, wow. Don Weinstock. Holy cow, I pulled that out of nowhere. Don Weinstock was my professor, and he clearly loved Christina Rossetti. Well, her brother is Dante Rossetti, Dante Gabriel Rossetti, I think. And he wrote this volume of sonnets called The House of Life. It's a really interesting book for Newland to have gotten swept up in because it is a book of sonnets that deal with time. Lost time, losing time, mortality, coming to terms with an awareness of one's own mortality, all of that. And that's the book of poems that Newland is taken with at the end of this chapter. Wharton does a nice job because obviously she's really well read. She does a really, really super nice job of picking stuff that was au courant for Newland, but also because of course she's writing with the distance of years, being able to kind of flag stuff for us and use it symbolically, which is exactly what she's doing here. I have linked to all of these writers and their books from the show notes. So if you're interested in getting any of these, and y- y- really, yeah, uh, you, can, you can get there through, through the show notes at just-the-books.com, episode 315, or at craftlet.com, episode 315. And if you didn't see the first sneak peek for my own novel, you can sign up for the newsletter and get that sneak peek sent right back to you pronto as an autoresponder. And of course, my book is nothing like The Age of Innocence. It's young adult fiction, psychic teenagers, romance. Uh, yeah. So if you are not interested in that kind of book, but you in that kind of lowbrow entertainment, but you know somebody who might be, please lead them to either the Facebook page for Grounded, The Seven, Book One, or the webpage, groundedseries.com, or, um, or just send them over to the mailing list that you can link to from the show notes and uh, let them sign up. And I wanted to thank everyone who joined in the giveaways last month. We had, uh, we had winners. And let's see, uh, Cheryl W. won the yarn from Meg. And Rosemary C. won a copy of Bigfoot Knits by pinning the cover on Pinterest. It was that simple. And this month, our giveaway is for my book, Grounded. I'll give away one paperback copy and one electronic copy. And all of that information is on our giveaways page, which you can get to from visiting the show notes at craftlet.com. And right at the top, you'll see information on Baby Lily. Yes, they are still trapped in Singapore. So please help if you can. It's horrible. And, uh, and the giveaway information is there too. So thank you. And thank you as always for your support and for listening and for enjoying books as much as I do. It makes me happy. I hope your week is a great one. I will talk to you soon. And thank you for your understanding and patience about me having to 
uh, go back to doing just one podcast as I start working full time again for somebody else. (laughs) Thanks and have a great week. I'll talk to you soon. Bye. Like Craftlet? Leave us a review on iTunes, like us on Facebook, or post a link to us when you comment on literary blogs. You can listen via Stitcher Radio, craftlit.com, just-the-books.com, or via our Android, our new Windows 8, or iPhone app. You can also use the free Craftlit app to access premium subscriber content. Just the Books and Craftlit are made possible by the support of our listeners, and for that, I am